Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Gastola, and I'm here with the show's other co-host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And this week, uh, we'll get right into it. Our guest is Cade Crockford. She's a director of the ACLU's Technology for Liberty Project for Massachusetts. And uh, we've got her here to talk about, uh, well, first, we're going to talk about uh, the Zokar Sarnayev trial um, and some some parts of uh, of this that aren't getting any attention whatsoever. The media does not seem to care at all. Do not they do not give a shit. Um, so welcome to the show, Cade. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Um, so you know, particularly um, what what caught my attention was this thing that you were um, promoting and pushing. You know, while we were all like paying attention to the middle finger seen around the world, this like image that just went viral of Sarnayev in his jail cell. I mean, maybe you can, you, you want to say something about the ridiculousness of all that, but while, but, but while this was going around, uh, you were talking about, uh, the, the, this police chief, Ed DeVoe, um, in Watertown and how people should have recognized Tamerlan Sarnayev in video surveillance images. So, so would you get into that? Sure. Something incredible happened a couple weeks ago in the local media here. There's a show called Greater Boston, which is hosted by a guy called Jim Browdy. It's on the local PBS station, WGBH, here in Boston. And it's a nightly news program, basically, very centrist. Um, they had a panel on the two-year anniversary exactly to the day, April 15th, 2015, uh, including some law enforcement people, Ed DeVoe, who is the chief of the Watertown Police Department and was the chief of the police there when the shootout happened in that very sleepy suburban neighborhood in Boston uh, a couple days after the bombing, and as well as the former head of basically the state public safety office, which is a position appointed by the governor, and that's Andrea Cabral. So Jim Browdy, the host of this program, asked Ed DeVoe sort of point blank do you think that the feds are at fault here in any way? And, you know, I expected that DeVoe would sort of brush the question off because thus far in Boston, there people have been very, very reticent to call attention, both in the press and in law enforcement communities, publicly to what I think are very obvious questions about the FBI's behavior in this case. I think the most obvious question is... It's pretty simple. Really, you know, even like a third grader, I think, could deduce just logically that the government's story didn't make any sense. And yet nobody basically except for me in Boston was talking about this for pretty much two full years until last week or a couple weeks ago. So the issue here is pretty simple. On Monday, the bombings happened. The official story is that by Wednesday morning, the FBI had identified images of the Sarnayev's uh, from the from the marathon attack and and knew that those were the guys who did the bombings and that between Wednesday morning and Thursday evening the FBI tried to figure out who these guys were to put names to faces essentially and that they couldn't and so as a result of their inability to identify the brothers they released images publicly I People listening to this probably remember Thursday evening, four days after the bombings, the FBI held a huge press conference in which, you know, I I think every cable station covered it live. 
And the former head of the FBI in Boston, Rick Delorier, stood up on a stage and showed the world pictures of the two brothers. They posted them on the FBI's website. The FBI's website crashed because so many people went to the website to look at the images. And then about five hours later, at 10.30 p.m. that night, the Sarnayev brothers allegedly killed Sean Collier, this cop at MIT, carjacked a guy in Alston and then drove to Watertown where they ended up getting into this crazy firefight with cops, throwing bombs in the street, etc. So the thing that has never made any sense is that the FBI was forced to acknowledge that it had interviewed, investigated Tamerlan on suspicion of terrorism in 2011. And it was forced to acknowledge this because after the bombings, when Tamerlan was dead after the shootout and they finally admitted they knew who the guys were, the Russian government told the press, hey, we actually told the FBI about these guys a couple years ago. We, we told the FBI that Tamerlan was a terrorist. So then the FBI was forced to admit, yes, actually, we did investigate Tamerlan in 2011. We found that there was nothing derogatory on him and we dropped it. So the question for me was always, the Boston Joint Terrorism Task Force the Boston FBI office acknowledges that it interviewed and investigated Tamerlan on suspicion of terrorism in, in 2011. And then we're supposed to believe that about 18 months later, nobody in the Boston FBI office, not even the two agents who went and met with him on multiple occasions, at least remembered his face. And I found that very difficult to believe. So I was asking questions about this for a long time. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, we heard rumblings from law enforcement in Boston. Cops are asking the same question. There was a Boston police officer who was quoted anonymously a few weeks back in the Boston Globe by a columnist named Kevin Cullen, who's a very pro-cop guy. And he raised the same question. Why didn't those FBI agents who interviewed Tamerlan recognize him in the images that the FBI located? Why did they release the images publicly? Somebody in the FBI should have known. Now, you might be thinking, this is, you know, who cares about this? It's sort of irrelevant. Well, Ed DeVoe on Jim Browdy's program a couple weeks ago said, I think, what is really obvious, which is that if these FBI agents had recognized Tamerlan, or if, you know, those who did recognize him had done something about it, then Sean Collier would not be dead, presumably, this cop, and the shootout in Watertown never would have happened. And the reason for that is that the brothers were at home all week. They didn't run and flee. They didn't try to go to Canada. They didn't um, hide out at somebody else's house. They essentially acted like everything was normal. Uh, Jahar went back to UMass Dartmouth, where he was a student, in his dorm room. Um, Tamerlan was at his house in Cambridge on Norfolk Street um, in Inman Square. And so, theoretically, if, I mean, not just theoretically, logically, if these FBI agents had said, oh, we know those guys, that's Tamerlan Sarnayev, and, you know, a very, a 30-second database search reveals that this is his brother, Jahar, they could have apprehended them on Wednesday, well before a huge series of crazy events went down that ended up not just in the resulting in the death of this police officer and this shootout in a civilian neighborhood, which could have killed, you know, how who knows how many people, but also the declaration of what amounted to martial law the following day and on Friday when we were told in Boston not to go to work, not to go to school. The subway system was shut down um, on a beautiful April day. None of that would have happened. 
So I just, this is like a sort of conspiratorial on my part, but I always found it really, um, really suspicious that he had been interviewed by the FBI before because I, well, a part of me always wondered if they had tried to make him an informant. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great, maybe he was like an informant gone wrong or something. Yeah, that's an obvious question. And, um, it's a question that the defense raised in the Jahar Sarnayev case in a motion last year, they said, they asserted it. They didn't say that it was possible. They actually said in a motion that the FBI asked Tamerlan to become an informant. They didn't say whether or not he was an informant, but they said that he, they asked him to be one. And people who are interested in this should pay very close attention to next week, this coming week's uh, court proceedings, because we are now possibly going to hear much, much more than we heard in the guilt phase of the trial in the upcoming sentencing phase about Tamerlan's relationship with Jahar, about Tamerlan's possible relationship with the FBI, um, because the Jahar Sarnayev defense team is going to basically be arguing that Jahar Sarnayev was afraid of his older brother, that his older brother was the guy who was uh, running this operation. But yeah, I mean, your question is a good one. And it's also a question that was posed by Chuck Grassley, who's now the uh, head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, longtime Republican senator from Iowa. Chuck Grassley, in an October 2013 letter to uh, Jim Comey, the director of the FBI, raises a number of very troubling questions. Among them, was Tamerlan uh, approached to become an informant? My favorite part, if not, why not? <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, the FBI... That's usually like asks, yeah. Yeah, yeah i mean it's like typical for them to try to recruit muslim men to become informants especially i mean he was a russian-speaking muslim guy who had pretty extensive connections in the underworld and the drug game in boston so he would have been a really great fbi asset if they could have gotten him so yeah Crassley asked was he an informant if not why not and he also raises a number of extremely disturbing questions about what happened in Cambridge the night that MIT police officer Sean Collier was killed. He says, um, in from what appears to be a uh, leak, someone from the Cambridge Police Department blowing the whistle to Chuck Grassley's office. This is way back in October 2013, just months after the bombings. He says that Cambridge police officers, even those who were assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force with the FBI, did not know that there were teams of FBI agents swarming Cambridge on Thursday afternoon and evening. This is before Collier was killed. So Grassley says, what were those FBI agents doing? Um, And why didn't the officers from the Cambridge Police Department who were assigned to the JCTF know what was going on in their own city when the FBI is running all of these operations all over the place? Um, One of them just down the street from where Collier was killed. And really, Grassley received insufficient responses to those questions. The Bureau and the Boston Bureau and the Boston Police Department issued this very weird statement in response to Grassley's letter in which they outright deny that Tamerlan was an informant. And they also say that the FBI agents who were swarming Cambridge the night Collier was killed 
were there on a matter unrelated to the Sarnayev brothers, which <laughs> I think is just possibly the most ridiculous thing I've heard the FBI say throughout this entire case, in part because it was um, widely broadcasted that the FBI director ordered not just every agent in Boston, but literally every agent in the entire world to focus on the manhunt until these two guys were found. So the idea that there were teams of FBI agents swarming Cambridge just down the street from where Tamerlan lived, and it had nothing to do with the Sarnayev brothers, really, um, you know, stretches <laughs> stretches the limits of credulity, I think. So, as, as you cover in extensively and intensively, uh, we have this massive surveillance state, and it would appear that if we're going to take the FBI at their word, or if, you know, if, if all these... And I think all these questions are incredibly legitimate... Uh, something isn't happening, and it seems like people should be furious that these things are not happening. Well, that's right, and that's why I'm raising questions about this. You know, I think some people might think, why is this person who works on surveillance issues at the ACLU so obsessed with the FBI's behavior in this um, terrorism case? And the reason is exactly that. It's because we are told constantly, Congress is told constantly by these deep state security agencies, they need more power, they need more money, they need more access to our private lives and our personal information, and they shouldn't be um, held down by civilian oversight or judicial oversight, and that we should basically just trust that they're acting in our best interest and they have to do it because it's really, really serious bad things could happen like the Boston Marathon bombing. Well... This entire case um, shows that what the government is saying, what, what the FBI is saying when they go to Congress and tell those stories is really a bunch of bullshit, frankly. Um, the FBI's massive surveillance programs, the Dragnet 215, uh, Section 215 of the USA Patriot Act, Dragnet pro uh, surveillance programs that enable the FBI and the NSA to, on a routine basis, collect um, all sorts of records of our communications and our buying habits, potentially even, uh, um, Senator Wyden has hinted, our location history in bulk um, drag on a Dragnet basis. None of those things stopped the Boston Marathon bombing from happening. And uh, even worse, we there was a story in The New Yorker not long ago, which begins with this truly incredible assertion. But it actually is true, which is that the vast majority, if not all, of the terrorist attacks um, committed by Muslims that have occurred on Western soil, not just in the United States since 9-11, have been committed, executed by people who were known to law enforcement. These are people who had been interviewed at some point by um, security agencies, people who were under surveillance even, people who had relationships sometimes with members of security agencies. So the idea that we need to subject the entire population to dragnet surveillance on a routine basis forever because of the threat that terrorism poses simply does not stack up against the facts, which is that these attacks are committed by people who the FBI already knows. All right, and then um, I guess this week uh, you were following a bill that was moving through Congress, um, and, and it's going to expand surveillance even further. It would give more authority. Uh, they're saying it's for cybersecurity, and I presume you know they. This is what you're talking about: wanting more intrusion into our daily lives in order to do security, but they can't even do it with the resources they have currently. 
That's exactly right. So this um, something very dangerous happened this past week in Congress, which is that the House passed a version of, I think, what we should just call CISA, which is sort of like something that civil liberties activists killed in Congress a couple years ago, you might remember, called CISPA. And these are basically surveillance bills, dragnet, massive surveillance bills that are being branded as something called so-called cyber security bills. The problem with these pieces of legislation, the the one that was uh, passed in the House last week, the Senate version of that is CISA and might come up for a vote as soon as the next couple of weeks. So if you're listening to this, please call your senators and tell them to vote no on CISA. This would be the most massive expansion of government surveillance since right after 9-11 when we had the passage of the USA Patriot Act and since 2008 when Congress authorized warrantless wiretapping um, through the Foreign the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. This would basically give companies the permission to hand over in bulk huge amounts of our personal information to the government. Um, they they are, they call this transfer of our personal information the um, giving from corporations to the government of so-called cyber threat indicators. The problem is that it would really open the floodgates. It would it would allow it would take precedent over electronic communications privacy law, which requires that companies get some sort of individualized demand from the government, whether that's a court order or an actual warrant, or in some cases, a simple subpoena, it would allow companies to just open the floodgates in some cases and give our personal information, including the content of our emails, um, all sorts of other highly sensitive information to the Department of Homeland Security, which under CISA would be required under federal law to share that information with the NSA and would not have to strip from that information uh, our personal data essentially. It would not only do that, it would give companies like Google, Apple, um, Comcast, internet companies, it would give them liability protection akin to the immunity that Congress afforded telecommunications companies when the FISA Amendments Act was passed in 2008, which meant that anyone who was trying to sue AT&T for handing over their private information to the NSA, their lawsuits were suddenly invalidated. And so we're facing a very similar threat with CISA that the government government will provide blanket liability protection to corporations who hand over our information in violation of um, electronic communications privacy law because CISA would basically overwrite those laws. It gets even worse. The information that these corporations would share with the Department of Homeland Security and the NSA and the FBI and the CIA would not only be able to be used to actually figure out how to stop so-called cyber attacks, which, you know, security experts say this this bill wouldn't even do. It wouldn't even help with the cybersecurity issues. It would enable the information shared to be used in criminal prosecutions such as robbery, arson, and carjacking, as well as identity theft and other just regular crimes. So basically, in short, It gives the government access to huge quantities of personal information about ordinary people, allows law enforcement agencies to use that information, which was obtained without warrants, to put people in prison. And then third, provides companies with liability protection so that if 
Google, for example, hands over all of its information about all of us to the NSA and DHS, we don't have a right to sue them. Well, it seems like all of this information would be extremely useful for, like, the FBI to coerce, uh, I guess, Muslim Americans into becoming formants as well. Like, if you had records on their criminal history and other suspicious conduct that had or not just, like, been embarrassing things that, like, yeah, you don't want people to sure. know. You could use that Absolutely. to go after them. Um, Absolutely, yeah. So, I guess I'd like to end. Uh, Loretta Lynch confirmed as the nation's first black woman attorney general, and you've, you've got an assessment of her, and I think it's, it's really a, a good assessment and one that should be put out there along with the very uh, angelic assessments of her. Uh, <laughs> so uh, why don't you share it? Yeah, I mean, let's, not, let's be very clear about Loretta Lynch's policy positions and her history as a prosecutor in the United States. Matt Apuzo wrote a pretty good story for the New York Times that was published immediately as she was confirmed. It includes such things as this. She came up as a prosecutor conducting drug prosecutions, um, you know, presumably of mostly black and brown people in the United States, locking them up for long terms for selling and using drugs. She um, has very regressive ideas about drug use and the drug war in this country. She thinks that marijuana should remain in a class um, as dangerous as heroin. She disagrees with President Obama that marijuana might not be more dangerous than alcohol. She also um, has overseen in her role as the U.S. attorney, the head prosecutor for the Eastern District of New York, um, a federal prosecutor, which is the position that she has just vacated to become the nation's top law enforcement official. She oversaw all sorts of really sketchy FBI pros- uh, investigations, prosecutions of people who it certainly looks like were targeted because they're Muslim and maybe not that bright. Um, there was a recent case of these two women who you know the her uh Loretta Lynch's office said in this process, in the affidavit were just dangerous terrorists who wanted to join ISIS and they had plans on building bombs and stuff and when you look carefully at even the government's own papers in the case it becomes pretty clear that this is yet another of the FBI's you know borderline entrapment cases where they send an informant to essentially convince someone to do something that otherwise they wouldn't have done on their own um in this case there was no bomb making materials. There was nothing. It's really just inflammatory rhetoric. It seems they apparently had found like a propane tank in this woman's house, whether or not it belonged to her barbecue, you know, we're not sure. But so Loretta Lynch was um, a fan of those prosecutions, I should just say. And then finally, the Times story says that whereas Eric Holder, who from the civil liberties perspective was far from an angel, right, far from a saint in terms of his um you know, protections of Americans' Fourth Amendment rights. Eric Holder was going around the country and conducting town hall meetings with black Americans um, discussing the uh, very, very serious issue of police violence against black people. Whereas Loretta Lynch has basically expressed plans to go on what sounds like a sort of apology tour to police departments throughout the United States. She's, you know, after after reading this New York Times story in which this plan is described, the first thing that I thought was Loretta Lynch, not all cops. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a, I think a, 
I don't think that we're going to be seeing any huge civil liberties gains under Loretta Lynch's um, uh, attorney generalship. Just um, I just wanted to note the after everything you just said, um, I thought it was really a good headline that uh, they had a black agenda report by Bruce Dixon, a letter of Lynch is it's Condoleezza Rice with a law degree. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was good, too. Yeah. Um, I should also mention that, of course, she supports dragnet surveillance, which, you know. I, well, isn't I, that like a default position that you yeah. have to have? Basically, like, yeah. Never, in, like, yeah. Yeah, in the administration. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a checkbox has to be filled to get the attorney general. Yeah, right. It's exactly. <laughs> Anyways. All right, well. Thank you for uh, taking the time to do this interview with us. We we really appreciate it. Uh, I know you do a podcast. Do you want to plug it before we let you go? Sure, yeah. I do a podcast with Alexis Goldstein um, called Humorless Queers, and we talk, we talk about, talk about, about issues that are pretty complicated and don't really get much coverage in the press related to banking and finance and surveillance. Um, and we try to be funny and make you not want to kill yourself, even though generally <laughs> what we're talking about is really depressing. <laughs> so, yeah, check average, it out. How many of your listeners have off to themselves? <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> thus far, no suicides have been attributed to our podcast. How, how many later. recorded cases of depression? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't get into that. Okay. <laughs> That's classified. Welcome back to the discussion portion of Unauthorized Disclosure. So, Kevin, lots of things happening. Um, I guess, you know, one one place that we could maybe start is, um, holy shit, did you, have you ever heard of a rough ride? No, I haven't, Rania. Why don't you tell me about it? So, I hadn't heard of this until, until now. Um, there's this police practice called rough rides where, like, the police will um, arrest an individual and put them in like their back of the wagon and then not like handcuff them and then not buckle them in and then drive like an insane person. Um, and then the person ends up getting like, like moved around in the back and like banging into stuff. And, um, I think one, you know, and, and they end up getting really injured. And this is apparently, um, what happened to Freddie Gray, uh, the 25 year old Baltimore, um, resident who died in police custody, um, on, I believe April 19th, um, that, which is like, you know, spurred these protests in Baltimore that are getting larger, um, you know, and like sort of reinvigorating the black lives matter movement. Um, but yeah, Freddie Gray died in police custody. Apparently his spinal cord was severed. Um, like just really awful. And we're still finding out like exactly what happened. Um, but he was subjected to this rough ride, um, procedure, that uh, it is not, and it's not the first time that Baltimore police like that have done this to someone, and then they become paralyzed, like, and they've had spinal injuries. There was, um, you know, there was two, there was a couple other cases like this. Um, recent, like in recent years, uh, there was a man named Don D. Johnson who was left a paraplegic after a 2005 police um, rough ride in Baltimore. Um, he was a plumber who was a 43-year-old plumber um, who, let me see, what he was um, arrested for public urination in Baltimore, handcuffed, placed in a transport van in good health, and then he emerged a quadriplegic from this procedure. Um, 
I mean, it basically violently throws you around in the back of the vehicle. Uh, one person who has been subjected to it described it as a roller coaster, except a roller coaster is more secure because you're strapped in. I mean, this is just insane. I didn't know this was a thing. Um, and, you know, I'm always just like, when I learn about these new things that cops do, I'm just like, holy crap, what is happening? This is disgusting. Um, and, I mean, I never cease to be shocked. Yeah, and uh, this this story, uh, th- there's a pretty pretty good report from the Baltimore Sun on this tactic of rough rides, uh, and maybe we can share it from our unauthorized disclosure account. Um, but there are multiple cases here. This is apparently a fairly regular thing, with like the wagon guy maniacally driving people to district police stations. So there's a woman, a 27-year-old assistant librarian for John Hopkins University named Christine Abbott, who is suing the city in federal court. Uh, she says she got one of these rough rides in 2012, and she was maniacally driven to the Northern District Police Station and tossed around the interior. Her, her quote in this article is that, They were breaking really short so that I would slam against the wall, and they were taking really wide, fast turns. I couldn't brace myself. I was terrified. Uh, You feel like a piece of cargo. You don't feel human. Uh, So, you know, it's like they are driving. I guess the police think these people are no better than, like, boxes in the back of a UPS truck, and they just drive wildly around corners and let these humans that they think are like objects slam up against the wall i mean so freddie gray after this like police apparently are admitting that they waited too long to um to get him medical treatment after this he had three fractured neck vertebrae and a crushed voice box um injuries that it says and these are injuries doctors say are more common among the elderly or victims of high-speed crashes i mean this is like like a horror story it's another instance of this you know i can't breathe like trying to tell officers that you're injured in the same way that eric gardner was you know trying to tell people that except i'm not sure do we don't have any evidence of him saying anything but that really doesn't matter the fact is that he couldn't breathe and the officers are doing nothing well they're like i think that there's there's an attempt i mean there's like video of his arrest um and like a bunch of officers basically uh like uh manhandle him um and shove him in the back of this police vehicle um but like they're saying his neck might have been injured before he was placed in the van and it's like holy crap like his spinal cord wasn't severed (laughs) well there's a ledge in the video there's this there's this thing that looks like a ledge back behind him and i and it's it's very possible that he was slammed into that ledge and that's part of what uh, did the injury. And then, of course, if you've got a severed neck or some kind of a, a major paralytic injury and then you're put in a van and you're driven maniacally, you know, how much worse is it going to get? And and we see that, like, and the family attorney is saying his spine was 80% severed. Jesus. Good guy. I mean, this is, I mean, this is like a murder, I mean, <laughs> like murder by, like, a rough, I mean... I just the 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 depths of like human depravity when it comes to the way that police forces in this country behave like is just getting deeper. <laughs> um I didn't think that was possible. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, more more entrenched um, in their thinking, uh, like. Uh, just off the top of my head, um, we don't have to go too far off on this tangent, but I see that like here in Chicago, uh, where I'm based, that the University of Chicago had some kind of like youth and police conference. And Rania, like ludicrously, these police are invited to get up on stage and claim that the reason why we're having these problems is because people lack police literacy. Like that was the like, no, these youth are. Like, they just misunderstand who we are. They they don't understand this brutality that we're inflicting on them. Look, like, if you don't want to get, um, if you don't want to get murdered by a cop, then, like, you know, just, just be obedient and maybe we won't murder you. Just, like, watch more cop shows on television and start to learn. And respect my feelings yeah. as a cop. Like, I am, like, I'm a passionate person. Um, sometimes, you know, I get a temper. <laughs> I mean, there was actually, you know, there was a recent article in the Washington Post that was like this investigative article about like um, just looking into and examining all the cases of police being indicted and who actually how many of them actually ended up like spending any time in prison for killing unarmed people. Um, and it was like very few of them ever. I think it was but, like 50 maybe. Yeah. Like well, the last seven or eight years maybe. Maybe. Uh, that like had been even indicted, no, but had been even charged. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of like thousands. But the point is, is that throughout the article, like there is, I was like kind of, there was this trend where um, juries will let police off, claiming it was a crime of passion. Um, like that the police, like, and I think one of them called it like a, um, like something like an impulse that can't be like stopped. Like, they just had this, like, um, understandable impulse, understandable, passionate need to, like, do this to this person. Like, as if, like, cops are, like, and I mean, crime of passion, like, that's something that's usually used to describe, like, when somebody kills, like, their wife for cheating on them. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, he did it in a crime of passion, you know? (laughs) Um, And I just thought it was really bizarre that this was being applied to, like, police. Like, the police are just so, like, they need you to be obedient to the point where, like, if a black man isn't, they have no choice. They have to kill them it's like they can't help it it's like what but yeah it's like that's where we've gotten to where like that's the argument is yeah it's like this irresistible i think that's what it was called by one jury called it an irresistible crime of passion i was like what <laughs> like he's shooting an unarmed man as he was fleeing um but yeah this is i mean it's just insane it's like this just keeps getting worse and worse and well you know what happened to freddie gray like I'm not sure what it is about particular instances that just really get people in the streets, but this particular police killing has people in the streets in Baltimore. So we should all keep our eyes on that and be really supportive because, um, but that's what needs to be happening. But then one quick point, uh, related to this is this, this issue of police brutality is just that I, I wanted to do a quick couple minute here. Follow up. Since we talked about Rakia Boyd's, uh, killing and this case of, Dante Servan, the Chicago police officer, being put on trial. Uh, the judge dismissed the charges. Uh, but the thing that I want to say is, is is not to... I think the judge takes a lot of blame for, 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 for that decision. But I also want to say that uh, what people should recognize is, like, in these cases with Freddie Gray or, or anybody where prosecutors talk about bringing charges... Uh, Prosecutors are deliberately bringing charges that they should not bring. Like they're bringing like weak charges. They're they're charging them improperly. 
they're they're choosing to not treat police as murderers, but instead like people who are reckless, people who make like mistakes. a doctor, like a doctor who made a mistake during surgery. Yeah, and so what happened is this judge in Dante Servan's trial looks at it and says, "Well, you've got a case for first degree murder. I don't think any of this was reckless. You know, the states laid out their case. To me, it sounds like he intentionally shot and killed these people, and that's why Rakia Boyd, this 22 year old woman, is dead." Um, so, you know, if you wanted to try to bring that kind of a case, that'd be fine, but I can't, uh, entertain these charges of reckless conduct. It's clear that Dante Servan was not being reckless. And so he got to walk because the prosecutor, uh, just charged it wrong. And there are, there's an alderman, a city council person here in the city who is accusing Anita Alvarez, the state's attorney of actually charging it improperly because she knew that this outcome could happen for the officer and that it would curry favor with the fraternal order of police in, in the Chicago. So, um, just something to keep in mind when we're talking about police brutality, not just the police officers, but the prosecutors that are, giving things this veneer of justice in order to like have everything go through a process but then someone like Dante Servan who killed somebody shot up bullet went into the head of Rakia Boyd you know then she gets to walk he he gets to walk uh and there are no consequences for him yeah I mean it's really ridiculous it kind of reminds me of the way that prosecutors charge Jordan um Davis's killer yeah. Um, Michael Dunn with like like they charged him with like weird kinds of um, murder like it was like he charged him with like with like a premeditated murder when it was more like second degree and like it's like yeah the jury ends up getting like or the jury or the judge you know ends up like getting stuck like on these like legal um, these sort of like legal details of like well he didn't this is not exactly how they killed them and like yeah and it ends up letting them get off for certain things um, in the case of Jordan Davis, it's like they didn't charge him with the murder of, um, of uh, they, and they didn't charge Dunn with the murder of Jordan Davis, but with attempted murder of his friends. It was really weird. Um, so but anyways. Why, so, so why don't you talk about the, 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 we wanted to talk about the migrants that drowned. Yeah, so um, this has been getting a lot of attention because um, last weekend, uh like 800 um, human beings drowned uh, in the Mediterranean on a um, on a boat trying to reach Europe on the off the Italian coast, um, and this was like just one of the most recent. I mean, this has been happening a lot where these boats full of hundreds of migrants are um, in these boats that are just like really beat up and you know should not be carrying hundreds of people end up capsizing. Um, in a desperate attempt, uh, attempt to reach Europe uh, by basically refugees who are fleeing all kinds of violence from, like, Africa and the Middle East. Um, and so this happened last weekend, and since then, Europe has, like, the world has been really outraged, and Europe's under all this pressure to do something to, like, deal with this crisis of, like, the Mediterranean being this graveyard for refugees um, trying to reach Europe. And Europe's response, um, after holding, like, two meetings with European Union leaders, is to basically, like, they're saying that they're going to launch military operations against the smugglers, like, against the people who are, who are like, operating the boats. Um, from, and they're coming from Libya. So they're talking about, like, launching military um, strikes against smugglers. 
um, and basically trying to blame smugglers in general for the fact that sell like I think over like seventeen hundred people have already died, and that's just the people we know. Um, just this year alone, um, which is like a 30 fold increase from last year. And I mean, th- so this, this comes on the bat, like, so just to give like a little bit of background context here, um, you know, with like the violence taking place in places like Syria, the rise of ISIS, um, you know, there's, and also like violence in places like Eritrea and Sudan, like there's been, um, an increasing influx of people like just fleeing violence from these parts of the world. Uh, according to the UN, we have, um, more refugees fleeing persecution and war today than at any time since World War II, which is a very like startling figure. Um, and they're mostly, you know, from the global South and places like, you know, the Middle East and, and Africa. Um, and so they're trying desperately to reach Europe and they have been. And so Europe is Europe's response has been to basically seal off its land borders, um, which there aren't very many of them, like between Spain and Morocco. Um, there's one and then there's like another one between like Bulgaria and Turkey, I believe. Um, there's a couple land borders and they basically sealed off by walls like Europe's building walls <laughs> um, to keep out people like refugees and migrants um in general and so that that has basically what it's done is people are still desperate to flee violence i mean especially like things like genocide which is happening in some cases um so they're going to find ways and so basically this has funneled people to use like into the sea to use the sea as the next route to to flee and so for the past couple years these boats have been every like especially like when the weather gets nicer these boats have been capsizing with hundreds of migrants in them and there was a couple years ago in 2013 there was a boat of 400 africans that um that drowned um and that like you know that provoked all this outrage and so italy like europe basically launched this like italian navy operation called male nostrum um and that had saved i think and it was like this big basically search and rescue operation and they saved like 150,000 people in the year that it was operational and then in october 2014 um the eu basically like scrapped that program and replaced it with a border protection program that's like called um operation triton that operates under frontex which is europe's border patrol agency um and that the mandate of operation triton is not to save people or rescue people it is border patrol and border protection and they only operate 30 miles off the coast which isn't very far um and really isn't where people are drowning and so Lots of like so like basically the the death toll has risen because of this, and Europe's response after what just happened with eight hundred people drowning has been to basically say that like rescue this is specifically what the u k is saying that rescuing people uh, encourages them. Uh, encourages smugglers and encourages people to come here. So we need to not rescue them as a form of deterrence. Um, and so basically, it's like let them drown. Um, so deterrence by death, I guess. Uh, is what they're saying. I mean, it's really, really cruel. And then you've got all like, and then you've got all these other European leaders who like don't want to be soft on immigration because there's this rise of like fascist parties taking place across Europe. And the reason that they gain steam is because of economic issues. And then also they're very anti-immigrant. Um, and so the, like all these European leaders are like, well, we can't be soft on immigration because then politically we're going to lose. And like these parties are going to gain. So like, it's also this cold political calculation. And then it's also just straight up racism. It's like Europe has this fear um, of like, you know, it's ethnic purity being contaminated by hordes of brown and black people. Um, 
coming from, you know, the places that Europe has colonized and destroyed and pillaged. <laughs> um, so you have the richest continent on the planet essentially, like, telling these people who are fleeing violence, like, fuck you. Um, you know, like, we don't want you in our country. People who do make it in are basically, like, detained and oftentimes deported and not given asylum, even though a lot of them, like, totally qualify for asylum. And I think this is kind of similar, Kevin, to, like, what we see happen in the U.S., where we don't have a sea that people are drowning in, but we have a desert that the wall built at the U.S.-Mexico border funnels people into so that when they cross, they're in the most dangerous terrain. And thousands of people over the last several years, we have, actually, we don't really know how many, um, but at least, like, like remains of people, I think something like 6,000 have been found, people who just, like, died of thirst um, yeah. trying to make it in the U.S. And then they're, you know, rounded up, people who are caught, are rounded up and put into like private detention facilities and then eventually deported. And a lot of them are fleeing violence too. And like, they don't even get to try and apply for asylum. Um, so it's just like the, I mean, it's just, it's basically the global North, you know, building up its borders, militarizing its borders to keep out the, you know, the, um, the unpeople of the global South who are fleeing violence. And that is in large part, um, you know, being, uh, you know, provoked or, or in large part is due to intervention and interference by the global north. Um, so it's just really disgusting, all of it. And you know what's really crazy, and this is something the U.S. is doing too, this is like a newer trend, is um, in response, um, Europe is saying, it's, and it's already done this in some cases, basically it's going to help beef up uh, security forces in places like Egypt and Sudan to stop people from fleeing in the first place. So like, so that they don't even get, so basically they're expanding their border patrol into places where people are fleeing violence to basically stop them from fleeing violence. So they can't even try and make it to like the borders between Europe and the Middle East or Africa. Um, I mean, that's like, you're basically denying people the right to like flee persecution like really you're gonna like say people can't leave sudan now because they might come to europe and this is something the u.s has done in places like honduras um the u.s has beefed up security there so they have checkpoints um that are manned by like honduran security forces that are trained by u.s border patrol that basically like if you're a child on your own they like won't let you through um if you're a child with your mother and like you know just the two of you or it's like basically they won't let certain people through because they think that they might be um fleeing to the u.s and it's like people are fleeing like violence and death um, and you're stopping them. I mean, and the craziest part of all this is you've got, like, especially in the places like the U.S. and Europe, it's like all these leaders, you know, we just had Holocaust Remembrance, right? Mm -hmm. And all of these leaders during Holocaust Remembrance will basically, you know, champion the cause of never again and talk about the complicity of European countries and, you know, the complicity of the globe, like, of, of the complicity in, you know, denying Jewish refugees the right to come into their countries uh, who were fleeing Nazi persecution and genocide. Um, and it's like, well, like, they go from saying that to being like, we can't let these refugees in because deterrence. Like, it's just amazing to me how, um, how just like the irony and the hypocrisy um, and the fact that so little has changed. Um, and you've got this obsession with dealing with like the specter of anti-Semitism rising in Europe. And it's like, holy crap, you've got people that are literally drowning in boats. And like, you're like saying, good, good. They should, you know, like we need them to drown so that people don't come here. While at the same time fighting what, you know, to be honest, is like largely um, 
especially in places like the U.S., is largely freaking imaginary. Like, if you're talking about xenophobia and, like, anti-immigrant sentiment, and then, like, you know, like, you've got more outrage over, like, over, like, people saying things about Israel and calling that anti-Semitic than you do over the fact that people are freaking dying in the boatloads. It's just insane. All right, so uh, I guess I should probably get into another thing that happened this past week, which was uh, President Obama announcing that there was a drone strike in January that had killed uh, two hostages that were being held in an Al-Qaeda compound or an Al-Qaeda-associated compound. And I guess I should emphasize this phrase, Al-Qaeda-associated compound, because the fact that you have the word associated means that it's not necessarily an Al-Qaeda compound. It's a group that the government claims is associated with Al-Qaeda that had this compound that I guess made it a compound that was okay to target and kill people inside. So anyways, um, there were two individuals inside. Um, Their names were uh, Dr. Warren Weinstein. He was an American contractor who had been uh, missing for a while. And an Italian uh, named Giovanni Laporto, who was also uh, an aid worker, and uh, it was—it's obviously a tragedy that these people were killed. Um, but um, also, there are some other issues that are possibly more important than just the tragedy itself, which is that uh, in the strike there was also uh, a U.S. citizen. Uh, named Ahmed Farouk, who was an al-Qaeda leader who was uh, killed. Um, And then there's also the issue of a separate operation being admitted to in uh, the White House's announcement that uh, a very well-known al-Qaeda mouthpiece, Adam Gadan, who was uh, a propagandist for al-Qaeda, basically, um, he was killed too. But these Americans, um, and the Orwellian phrase that the Obama administration likes to use, is that neither was specifically targeted. Um, and, and the reason why, um, I have a really big problem with this and I want to talk about this issue first before going on to, um, an even more larger and more systemic issue is that, uh, this basically absolves the Obama administration of any responsibility for choosing to extrajudicially assassinate these people. Um, and, and it's the same thing as like, uh, Abdul Rahman Al-Awlaki, the 16 year old, son of Anwar Alaki, who, you know, they say Alaki was targeted, and then they, two weeks later, launched a strike, and it killed Abdurrahman, and the Obama administration continues to maintain that Abdurrahman was not targeted, um, though the person that they claim to have targeted is not even anybody that anybody in the vicinity of this, uh, this kill site actually remembers being there. So... Uh, I think it's very uh, important uh, to me to, to just raise this issue of the fact that it's a way of sidestepping this issue of how we're placing uh, American terrorists on kill lists and choosing to execute them abroad. Uh, we know that uh, you know there was recently a person actually captured and brought back to the United States to be put on trial for alleged crimes. We know that when they choose to, when they want to, they can capture people. Um, but you know, you just, it's, it's a CIA operation and the CIA's word is not particularly good historically. 
So when we take the, the CIA or the Obama administration at their word that they weren't specifically targeting any of these people, but I know that Gadan and this guy Farouk, who was the uh, deputy emir of Al Qaeda in the in in India, you know the the chapter of Al Qaeda in, in in India, um, this these are people who I would imagine uh, the Obama administration would gleefully place on the kill list and want to go after. Uh, so, anyways, they make the announcement about the hostages. Obama doesn't say anything about Farouk or Gadan. Completely ignores them and that issue and just talks about the hostages. But then also the larger, I think the more uh, dominating issue is just that we have this discussion about apology and the fact that Barack Obama is apologizing for killing these two hostages when there are many, 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 you know, upwards of of, of a couple, if not 3,000 civilians at least that have been killed in drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, and there are no apologies for them. And there are cases that have been pushed in courts, uh, there are people who have filed Freedom of Information Act requests demanding information on what happened to their loved ones, or you've got people uh, in organizations like the ACLU or the Center for Constitutional Rights that want to know more information about how people are being chosen to be targeted, and they don't get apologies. Well, so we know, but like we know from not like, it, you know, and not the too distant past, um, because of, I remember classified like CIA documents showing basically like the way that they label people who they kill. They don't know who they're killing for yeah. the most part. And that's the other thing. That's the that's another large issue. In addition to this, uh, this issue of apology, it's also the fact that um, and I, I like this quote from the ACLU's Jamil Jaffer. So I'm just going to read it because it's it's very concisely puts it into words. These new disclosures raise troubling questions about the reliability of the intelligence that the government is using to justify drone strikes. In each of the operations acknowledged today, the U.S. quite literally didn't know who it was killing. Plain and simple. Like, we're just launching missiles into compounds, and suddenly, like, others emerge. And so you've got, on one hand, Barack Obama going to, like, the National Defense University in May of 2013 and and standing before everyone and claiming that there are all these guidelines we're going to have a near certainty standard that no civilians are being killed or injured it's the highest standard we can set and we're supposed to just on faith believe that this is all good they're going to do everything but you know many times they they don't know who these people are inside of these but it doesn't matter because they've also like developed language they've developed a way to get around it by uh labeling anybody who's nearby a militant as an associate so thereby if they die it's not really collateral damage it's more of like well they probably were involved and they shouldn't have been there anyways well you know i remember this um this quote by um like a senior official to like the new york times back when it was like these like cia like classified leaked documents showed that they have no idea who they're killing. Um, this one senior official was like, three guys doing jumping jacks. Uh, or when the CIA sees three guys doing jumping jacks, the agency thinks it's a terrorist training camp. Um, <laughs> that's not far off. Like, that is, like, it's like people coming together 
gathering together. I mean, they basically target people based on quote unquote patterns of behavior, right? Yep. That's kind of like what the signature strikes were all about. But that's essentially like they're, when they're following people, that's what they're doing with these drones, like when they're surveilling them. Um, and that's based on that's the intelligence. And they're like, we've been collecting intelligence. They're talking about intelligence from the aerial, like aerial intel. They don't have people on the ground. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing, um, uh, as a, a, another point, and then we'll move on to our final topic, is just that this compound. Okay, okay. What kind of organization is Al Qaeda, anyways? Like, we know that they will pressure people to like take over their homes. Like, you know, they come in and they say, "We're going to use this building. We're going to use this compound for us." And like, there are people in there who are innocent who can't say no to them because they're going to be killed. They're going to be executed on spot by these people. Sounds like the Israeli army. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so I'm just saying that like when. The U.S. government says this is an Al-Qaeda-associated compound. Well, what the, what the fuck does that mean? Like, did some family have their home taken over by a, a group? Um, those are many different factions. Um, they're, they're splintered. Actually, I read um, in, an, in a report on this uh, strike that was uh, before any of this announcement from Obama that these these are just like, you know, Uzbeks or like some other like militant faction that's warring in Pakistan. And, you know, like there's also this issue there with, with like this larger issue of, you know, some of these groups, I guess, um, being upset with the Pakistan military and periodically wanting to take up arms in order to defend their territories, probably. Um, and, people get caught up in between these like factions and uh i think any given month it can shift is what i'm trying to say here it's yeah. just that it is just that some some months these militant groups are so opposed to al-qaeda six months later if the pakistan military is committing war crimes against them or something because they're pushing an offensive then they're allied with al-qaeda because they've been pushed to become they're, right, it's like, but like, well, the point is, is they're not necessarily sitting around, um, you know, crafting or orchestrating attacks on the U.S. Right, and that's that. Yeah, there you go. That's it. Because you know, he's claiming Barack Obama is claiming that I love this part of uh, that there were dangerous individuals there. So we we killed those dangerous individuals, um, but Barack Obama gave us no more information at all about why. You know, uh, why are they dangerous? Yeah, what, no, no, and but, also, why they, why do you get to kill them? Yeah, yeah, that's why. Like, yeah, like, why were these people, why did you have to take this strike? What was going to happen to us that was so critical that you had to, to, to fire that strike and now, you know, as we look back, sacrifice the lives of these two hostages? And nobody in the Obama administration has said why that strike had to be taken or else this thing would happen to us all. Um, and, and they feel like they don't have to. Like, and I guess they get away with it because the press doesn't demand that. And doesn't say, like, you know, no, you don't get to move on until you tell us, like, this thing. And we don't demand that. We just kind of assume, like, oh, Al-Qaeda-associated compound. Of course they're going to attack us. Oh, speaking of drone strikes, Kevin. Yes. Um, I thought that that would actually be a good way to get... We just have a few minutes left, and we, we I thought we could end on this. Um, the I don't know if you read this, um, this 9,000-word whiny piece by Michael Eric Dyson, um, basically a screed against Cornell West. 
um, in the New Republic. It, it made, you know, it kind of created a firestorm on social media. Um, but, uh, yeah, Michael Eric Dyson, basically, the, you know, Professor at Georgetown, big supporter of Obama, you know, progressive as far as he's allowed to go um, within the confines of still being pro-Obama. Um, he uh, basically goes after Cornell West and uses, you know, in, in almost a 10,000-word screed, um, angry about the, the va- basically the very colorful language Cornell West has used um, to criticize Obama. Um, and how, and, and Cornel West has also used very colorful language to criticize Michael Eric Dyson and people like Al Sharpton and Melissa Harris Perry. I believe he's called them like house Negroes on the Obama plantation, like things like that, which is very strong language. I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he goes after him, um, and basically reduces Cornel West's Obama critiques to, um, to like personal, like pathological hatred and jealousy, <laughs> As opposed to what Cornell West actually does, which is engage in legitimate critiques of Obama, one of which is Obama's drone killing policies um, and the horrific destruction those policies cause um, against, you know, Pakistanis and Yemenis and people in Afghanistan and everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was just this really like I I was, you know, I wasn't surprised by it. This has kind of been a rivalry that's been going on for a while. But the timing of it is very strange because we're nearing the end of the Obama presidency. Um, And just the fact that like this, you had 10,000, you went like you spent 10,000 words like hating on on Cornell West for hating on Obama without actually engaging or addressing any of his critiques of Obama whatsoever. Um, And those critiques are totally legitimate. Um, So, yeah. I, I guess I just wanted to say a couple things about that is I think it, that had a lot to do with um, I think there's a basically like a bit of a tug of war going on right now with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement matters movement, um, which is like very, you know, it's flourishing. It doesn't really have leaders. Right. It's sort of like a non hierarchical structure of organizing and protest. Um, and direct actions uh, against police brutality. And it's also, like, very intersectional, increasingly so. Like, there's been a lot of Palestine activism intersecting with Black Lives Matter activism, which is really exciting. And it's not something that can be controlled. And people like Al Sharpton, um, you know, have not been able to. Like, there's, like, a bit of, like, hostility between Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter and Al Sharpton. Because Al Sharpton, you know, has tried to swoop in and take over, and they won't let him. And he doesn't like that. Um, And it's, like, not good for Democrats. It's, like, scary. It's, like, scary because anything that can't be controlled, especially on the left, is always scary, right? Oh, absolutely. So I feel like a lot of this had to do not just with bashing Cornell West, but Cornell West, I think, is sort of representative of that kind of... um, of that kind of like, like that kind of grassroots stuff, you know, the grassroots Black Lives Matter stuff. Like Cornell West has been very um, vocal and very um, and very visible at like protests, not just for that, but all kinds of things. Like he's very, very vocal on Palestine, and he's very supportive of BDS. Um, and he's like a huge figure. So that's a big deal. <clears throat> excuse, excuse me. That's a big deal. Um, you know, and he, like, basically, like, is, like, just totally, <clears throat> excuse me, goes after, I'm like, yeah, I can't, totally, like, he just, like, he doesn't leave, he doesn't, he's not polite about it. Like, he's very, and he, he embar- I think he embarrasses the Democratic Party because he calls them out on their bullshit, um, especially under Obama. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think that this was sort of like a way to um, to combat that, not just <clears throat> Cornell West, but sort of this rising movement that's uncontrollable and in, in, a, in a, bit, a lot of ways a threat to the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess I'll just I'll mention one thing because I think it's 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 pretty great here. Uh, this uh, uh, Margaret Kimberly is a columnist for Black Agenda Report. And she, she wrote something, and I don't think it got as much attention as uh, Dave Zirin did a really good response um, about the metaphor that uh, Dyson uses, uh, Mike Tyson, uh, throughout his screed. And uh, then uh, Max Blumenthal did something for Alternet. Uh, and Kimberly has uh, a, a good post here. And... Um, he, she says that there's something really insidious about him because he and many other Obama files not only insist on standing by their man, but they go to great lengths to discredit and disparage anyone who doesn't share their infatuation. Dyson and other critics rarely take on the substance of West's statements. Their outrage is based on loyalty to the cult of black success, which is epitomized by Obama's election. They protect him and their friends who have found themselves in West's rhetorical crosshairs. Um, which is all true, right? Like, how, Absolutely. Do you, how do you disagree with that? So, yeah. um, and then the other thing is like, uh, you know, that how the other thing is why I think we can call it a screed is like Dyson, and also why we should condemn it is because it doesn't seem to be for the sake of engaging in debate on issues. Like, it would be one thing if I thought there was something um, intellectual and high minded about what Dyson was doing, but he went on HuffPost Live, Ronnie, and said that this was vital and necessary to take down Cornell West. You know, he also, like, in his piece, I don't know if you read all of it. it yeah, I don't recommend it. It's not good. <laughs> um, but in his piece, he, uh, like, basically quotes Larry Summers, <laughs> like, like the former uh, uh, dean. Was he the dean of Harvard or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, like, the guy who basically, like, said that we should dump toxic waste in, like, uh, in third world countries because their lives aren't as important and they don't live as long. Anyways, so they don't have time to develop prostate cancer. Like he, that's what he. It, that was like a huge scandal in the nineties. Um, but yeah, that that Larry Summers. Uh, he quotes Larry Summers and then agrees with Larry Summers' critique against Cornell West, um, which is like what? Mind you, I should add that Cornell West in two thousand two called Larry Summers the Ariel Sharon of higher education. Which I think is hilarious. But beside the aside from that, um, yeah, he did. He also quotes like in the piece, uh, Leon Weaseltier. Is that how you say his name? Sure. Um, who was formerly of the New Republic, like super racist. Yeah. <laughs> like he basically quotes these people who are racist assholes and agrees with them, even though he's like, but I don't agree with everything they say, but on Cornell West, they're right. And then he like he he tries to claim. I mean, he basically like it's also sort of a rewriting. Um, of Obama's record, like trying to make Obama seem like this wonderful person who's done all these wonderful things. And he claims that Obama talks right, but veers left on public policy. Like, it's just like, there's so many parts of it where you're like, did you really just say that? Like, are you kidding me? Um, but yeah, it's like, he also like, he, he did all these interviews. One of them was at Salon and I was really annoyed by this. Uh, Joan Walsh of Salon did an interview with him and she basically agrees with him. And there's, it's like basically a lot of it's just like this hippie punching um, right. that they're engaging in, especially with Dyson, like this sort of like the people on the left need to stop. And in Dyson's piece, I should add, he also tries to say that um, that Martin Luther King was better when he was like an insider. 
Um, like before, like it's like he did better for his people. He got more done for his people when he was like, uh, like rubbing elbows with the with LBJ's administration than after. And that Cornell West has it wrong. And like he was trying to make it seem as though like Martin Luther King had any sort of. Like, it's like as if Martin Luther King was an insider because he was friends with LBJ as opposed to the fact that he led a really, really huge movement. Like, sort of, like, he just, like, twisted it around. Um, it and sort made of it seem... excuses power for trying to crush dissent. It also excuses himself for, like, visiting the White House a bajillion times. Yeah. Like, it's like, no, there's a difference between Martin Luther King visiting LBJ as, like, a representative of the civil rights movement that was massive, and that's the only reason, because of the people that were in the streets and, and working, like, in, like, the movement he represented was the only reason that he was, like, given a platform with that administration, as opposed to, like, being freaking, like, the defender of the president and, like, kissing his ass and, like, being his friend. Those are two very different things. Um, and it also, like, it's just... But anyway, so in Salon, he basically accuses... Like, he basically says that Cornell West's attack on Melissa Harris-Perry was sexist, but he doesn't give a reason why. He just says that that's a sexist because she's a woman. Um, and Joan Walsh agrees. And then Joan Walsh goes on to call Cornell West... At, like, he, she accuses him of anti-Semitism. For, like, at some time, at some point, like, I guess, you know, that Chris Hedges interview he did a long time ago that you had written about, um, where he basically comes out hard at Obama. Uh, Cornell West had said Obama's more comfortable with middle and upper class, like, white brothers and Jewish brothers than he is with free black men. He said something along those lines. And so she quotes that, and she calls it anti-Semitism. And I'm like, and, and Dyson doesn't challenge her. And this is happening while at the same time, like the Israel lobby is going after Cornell West because he's a, a huge public figure, like one of the you know most well-known African-American intellectuals in this country. And he is like increasingly vocal on Palestine and a big supporter of BDS. And so there's this attempt to silence him at this thing that he was invited to at UCLA. And so it's just like very, um, I don't think it's like an accident that this is all these attacks are sort of taking place at the same time. Um, and it's like, it's also like people, I mean, it's just shocking to me. Like you're calling him anti-Semitic because he said, I mean, I don't think that's an anti-Semitic thing to say at all. I was like, if that's anti-Semitic, it's also anti-white. Like, cause he said white brothers, you know, but regardless, it's just like this attack is taking place together, um, at the same time. And I, I don't think it's like at all an accident. I think it's basically just like, it's coming from a similar, um, place of trying to, like hippie punch and just crush dissent. Well, um, well, let me, if if I can, um, make one point before we end our show, and then you know maybe you have something else to say. But I wanted to get this in um, because uh, four years ago, as you as you mentioned, Melissa Harris Perry, um, this is what she was doing. She was uh, doing something similar to Cornell West that that Dyson is doing now. You know, calling attention to him specifically, and I think. Basically, because she wanted to play her role and uh, do a service and, and try to f fashion him into some kind of a, of a pariah. Um, and, uh, you know, like the, the left has a history of all these people being turned into pariahs for their activism. Uh, I mean, uh, not to really go on and, and, and go through this analogy, but it's like. If you want to make the Democrats go into fits, you just say Ralph Nader. If you want, <laughs> if, if you want to, if you want to make people go into fits now, it seems like the new is like you know he's a kind of like black Ralph Nader, and there's like something that really makes them upset because 
Cornell's not working with the system, as you say. Well, he's also effective. He's very, very effective. And he um, won't go away. And yeah. and the thing that I just want to say is, uh, say what you will about Chris Hedges, but there's this incredible quote that has that I have to say here before we end this. And it's in this book, The Death of the Liberal Class. He says, the liberal class is expected to mask the brutality of imperial war and corporate malfeasance by deploring the most egregious excesses while studiously refusing to question the legitimacy of the power elite's actions and structures. When dissidents step outside these boundaries, they become pariahs. Specific actions can be criticized, but motives, intentions, and the moral probity of the power elite cannot be questioned. Yeah, that's a really good book. It really sums up well um, the role of liberals in this country. (laughs) Um, Anyways, on that note, we are out of time. Um, Wonderful conversation, Kevin. It's always fun. Um, Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. 